You know, I see myself as a little bit of an unconventional teacher in many ways. I was looking at this thing, I was like, teacher, right? I was like, <laughs> that's back here. <laughs> because in some way, we're all, we're all teaching each other. And I never, I always say when I'm in any community that I start, I always say, well, I'm not really teaching you anything. We're all reminding each other. It's like, I have nothing new to say. There is nothing new to say. <laughs> but what happens, though, is, you know, we remind each other, and those memories are good. Like, yes, I forgot about that. How could I have forgotten for so long, right? And then we really appreciate that for being who reminded us. But the memories are our own. They are uh, connected to ourselves, our insights, our reflections. Um, so I'm just here to remind you of that which you already know, that which you just forgot. And one of the things I know about the Dharma is so much of what we're doing is mind training, right? You go to a retreat even, months and months. When I was young, I used to go on these long three-month retreats in Massachusetts. And then I would just be leaving the retreat center and it would always be like, what did we just do? You know, <laughs> What are we doing now? I have to go back home. What am I going to, oh my God, right? It would be, like I was already forgetting. Like that's how, and of course I remember, but the mind is so... One moment, and that's like the repetition, right? We say things a thousand times. Sometimes I've heard the same Dharma talk. Um, over and over, you hear the same Dharma talk, especially when you're a teacher and you're with, teaching with colleagues. You're like, oh, yeah, there's so-and-so's talk. I've heard that, like, since I was 25, and, yeah, it's so beautiful. Here it is, three noble truths, four noble truths, I mean, three characters. And then, but then I started to see how great it was because every time it would be the first time. You know, I was like, oh, yes, how could I have forgotten? Thank you. And then I started to feel this really deep, instead of resisting the repetition, a deep gratitude for the reminder. Like, oh, yes, thank you for reminding me. So I say all that because what I want to talk about is about the heart, and I want to talk about it from on many different levels because all I'm going to do is remind you. That's it. You know, the heart has its own language, its own understanding, its own innate wisdom, right? Its own, its own journey, its own um, mystery of wisdom and unfolding. And so I like to talk about this because as I've been writing over the last four years about a fierce heart, I, of course, when you, when you want to master something, teach it or try to. Right? It's the best thing ever. You're teaching yourself. That's what you're doing. Even Dharma talks and preparations, even elaborate things you prepare for, actually, at the end of the day, you're just talking to yourself. You're teaching yourself. There's other beautiful beings there sharing in it. But ultimately, you're waking yourself up again to whatever aspect it is that you're interested in is a part of your own uh, unfolding, unfolding, your own practice. So when I was... Uh, writing this book, deeper understandings about the heart started to come on many levels, right? Because I wanted to understand the depth of it. And my practice, when I first started practicing, I was very interested in the Brahma Viharas, right? The qualities of metta, compassion, equanimity, and joy. Those qualities uh, became important to me 
because I already had grown up around a lot of suffering, I felt like I understood it on some level. I was like, I was like, yeah, you don't have to go on and on. Yeah, I get it, right? And so I wanted to balance that, you know, in my own being with understanding how does the heart play a role? Because I always felt a lot of connection to those teachings. So my very first retreat I ever went to was a 10-day course. Before Spirit Rock had their retreat facilities, I used to rent off-site venues. I was in California in the desert, and I went on a 10-day retreat. And this was after I had everything in my life had really fallen apart. I had this terrible relationship that <laughs> we just fought night and day. We were living in East Oakland in this really bad neighborhood. I'm not even going to say intense, you know. It was like... Oh, gosh, everybody was in a bad mood. Even my dog was mad and would try to bite people. And I was like, what? It was a rescue pit bull, but still, she was always so nice. She was like, really? I was like, God, even my poor dog is miserable. Everybody was just mad, right? It was just not good. And, uh, and I could tell like, something's wrong with my heart. And I was trying to teach myself meditation through self-realization fellowship through the Paramahasa Yogananda who wrote the book, uh, Autobiography of a Yogi, and you know, he's like all these great books, but he's dead now, it's just his followers, right? And I would go to their temple, and they wouldn't say anything to you when you came in. It was up in this hill, and I don't think they wanted anyone to come, actually. It was just like for this small group that took care of it. So I was like coming in, like kind of disrupting the place, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> And I would sit there. They wouldn't tell you any meditation instruction, nothing. You would, I did it three-hour sits. That was what they did. You came for a three-hour meditation, and then one person would chant for about 30 seconds to mark the hours. And I would just be like, after three hours, like, <laughs> what? So hard. Oh, my God. But, but I would go because I was determined. I had this, I had this you know, desired that like something is wrong with my mind like I knew it started here I knew it I knew I was like no that's other stuff I, yeah it's problems yes problematic but really it's my mind something and I would try to tell them that something it's my mind and they would say yes just focus on God focus on I'd be like okay focus on God and then you know crazy mind but after two hours it would out of just sheer exhaustion get still. You know, you sit long enough, eventually all the dust settles, right? But how long do you have to sit and how much? So I did that and I, I uh, started to feel that my heart wasn't invested in the way that I had read in books and stories and even in the Buddha's own teachings. So when I went to my first retreat, they did this practice called metta. And that really... Uh, awakened something in me, the fact that I could do a practice where I could cultivate this quality, where I could learn how to sit down and I could do a practice where I cultivated compassion, I cultivated loving kindness for myself, and then I could radiate it outward was really important to me because I had such a deficit at that point, right? It was like an empty, empty teacup, right? There was, it was nothing in there my own love, my own heart, and it was like, it was dry, it was brittle, and it wasn't there. And so I was really interested in those practices at that point because it seemed for me a very important thing on two levels. One is that I could do it myself, 
right? I didn't have to sit around waiting for other people to go, I love you, I love you, I love you. They might and they might not do that. People are fickle, right? Even if you're in a relationship, the person might want to do that one day, and the next day they're like, yeah, I'm busy. Do it yourself, right? Love yourself, right? <laughs> so depending on others is very unstable base. Where compassion, love, all of that, this is a very, very unstable. So I saw that right away. I could see that growing up, the lack of stability in that, uh, depending on others to, for this energy of the heart. And I love the fact that I could sit down and I could cultivate it myself. I could learn to feel it myself. So that became my practice doing insight as well and, and following breath and body and, and learning the Dharma. But my emphasis really became what is self-compassion? What is self-love really look like internally? How do I live that? So that has really been a big exploration for me. Um, and it's taken me into all kinds of discoveries. And I've discovered a lot, and there's infinite amount to know. I'm just like a little preschooler when it comes to the heart. I mean, this energy is vast. I mean, this is like when bodhisattvas talk about bodhisattva vows going out. I mean, this is like some of that. And I just catch a whiff of it. I'm like, oh my god, this is a, this is a type of love beyond, a, a quality beyond. And in the Buddhist you know, tradition, when they talk about the Brahma Viharas, are you familiar with that term, right? Some of you are. Those In Brahma Vihara, a translation of that means um, divine abode or heavenly vehicle. Right, Brahma is like your vehicle, your car. Right, a boat is like you know how you dwell. You know how are you? So it's your, this is like your your vehicle. Your 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 body would be like another expression of that. Your your heavenly vehicle, and so um, one of these, you know, they describe it as immeasurable. And I teach meta retreats uh, around. I teach usually two a year at Spirit Rock, a 10-day one in the summer. I won't be doing that this year, but I'll be doing a seven-day one. And these meta compassion-based retreats, you know, people come to it and they're really excited. They're like, I can't wait. I'm going to be doing love at Spirit Rock, and it's so beautiful here, and all the food, and the California weather, and right? <laughs> And then all hell breaks loose on these retreats. I mean, people are getting sick and throwing up and squealing and, and, and hate, a rage from unrage, like primal rage and terror. And they're like, but I'm on a meta retreat. <laughs> I don't know. And their dreams are filled with like violence and terror. This has happened to me. It was just like, oh my God, like gore, right? And it's like, well, what we're doing is we're cleansing out the mind and the heart. So when you enter into a heart practice, and now I understand, you know, um, I've been lucky to uh, read uh, a lot and study a little bit with Ram Das, and he talked about Ram Das being, you know, this teacher who really has been focusing on the heart for the last 40 years straight. And he said, it's an accelerator. Oh yeah, it'll take you faster. <laughs> you know, if you really want to grow on the path, open your heart. The hardest thing you'll ever do is to open your heart. The second hardest thing you'll ever do is love yourself, right? That's like, it's like beyond, right? And that's what I used to see on these courses, was these battles people would have with their mind. Like, it was a clash of the titans, right? This energy against this energy. 
and something pushing toward that hatred, that, that self-doubt, that self-criticism that just like chops away at the beauty. It's like we plant all the garden and then some animal comes in the night and eats the whole thing. It's just all broken branches. I mean, like, what happened, right? But we are that animal, right? We're, like, we're out chopping. So this became very uh, interesting for me to study and understand. Um, in Buddhism, I feel like there's an overemphasis on the mind. And the heart gets like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that at the end of the retreat for five minutes. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. But this is the real practice, right? And the, like, yes, you feel your body, you, you know. And then I think, oh, but, but what happens that I've seen in the last 20 years and what I saw in my teacher training was that the lack of cultivating this quality led to a plateau in every other area. So where people, when you first meet Buddhism, you have a love affair. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm in the freedom. We're off on the retreat. It's so great. We make this huge leap. It's like, wah, a quantum leap forward. But then, like with all relationships, what happens after the beginning? <laughs> then you're like, wow, now there's all these issues that we have to kind of sort out. Oh, right. Uh-huh. And then that becomes hard. Then the, the real work of the relationship gets underway. <laughs> the real practice gets underway. The real overturning the mud and to really enter into a real path of purification. That's what we're talking about here. I was yesterday, I was at um, ABC Studios talking to uh, my good friend Dan Harris, who's uh, kind of wrote the book, a second one, the my favorite fidgety skeptic. He writes these 10% happier. And, um, so he's been a really good friend of mine. I met him while he was falling apart on a Vipassana retreat at Spirit Rock. I didn't know who he was. He actually wanted to meet with Joseph Goldstein, but Joseph was busy. So he was like, who's the trainee? All right. And, and he had been projecting all this, this negativity onto me, like, oh, God. Oh, I hate how they talk here. Oh, my God. Not a shawl, please, not a man, no, right? He was, he hated the outfits, and which I think is hilarious. That's the mind, right? I used to be like, oh, I look at the teacher, what is going on, what? I think in Zen it helps when everyone wears the same color. It's hard to kind of, but you can't. You can still go there. And um, anyway, so what happened to Dan on the retreat was that, um, he needed help, and he came in, and he was sort of freaking out. And so I helped him for a long time. I talked to him. And then shortly after that, we did meta practice in the afternoon, and I was the teacher training, and the teacher asked me, will you please guide all the metas in the afternoon because you really like it. <laughs> so I was like, sure. So I, I led the afternoon guided metas. And, and then, of course, he has his breakdown during the meta, and he's remembering his childhood, and his heart opens, basically. He feels his heart. For the, I don't know if it was for the first time, but it was after a long time. Let's not say first time. Um, and that changed him fundamentally, those experiences. And so I feel like in some way what my dharma lot in life is or my dharma journey here on this planet, you know, as a woman, as a woman of color, is to talk about the heart 
and to kind of balance out even the Dharma, which goes very scientific, very intellectual, and can leave the heart a million miles away as being, that's just hippie stuff. But as we know, you know, that's not accurate. What's so beautiful is that what's coming out, a lot of the Mind Life conferences, the Dalai Lama and then all of Richie Davis are doing all this research. A lot of the research with Tibetans are focused on the heart. They're not so interested, even though they have this complex map of consciousness, right? All the Dharma has this complex. For them, everything comes through here. Everything comes back to compassion. And I didn't really realize how important this quality was until I started doing long, deep practices alone. So I talk about, in one of the chapters in my book, and now I'm just kind of weaving stories together here. Um, it's called Meeting the Great Chief. <laughs> and this is where I really understood about compassion for the first time. So I had uh, a few years back, I was really tired. Uh, our center had opened, and our center runs totally on donations. So I can't tell you how many classes I've taught, <laughs> you know, uh, so many. I, I don't know, starting classes, opening classes, introduction classes, four-week class series, you know, all downtown. You know, we have our little baskets, you know, one for the teacher, one for the center. And I, in the early days, when we first opened our center, it was, it was small. We moved to a bigger location. East Bay Meditation Center has gotten more popular. Um, but I did, we did everything. We would come in, we would vacuum, we would, you know, decorate. <laughs> then we would be like, hi, everybody, come on in, teach the class, and then clean everything up, wash the bathroom out. And then, you know, we didn't even think about it. But I was doing that, like, every day right, and, and trying to manage all these other things, and so I was in, also in training at that time. So it was a lot, a lot, a lot. So I got burnt out a little bit, so I decided to do this five-month retreat. So I went to Crestone, Colorado, because my sister had did a retreat up in the mountains there. I said, there's something magical about those mountains in Crestone. And Crestone, Colorado is a very interesting place because the whole town was actually owned by a family, like all the acres, like million. And then the husband died and left it all to the wife. And the wife goes, well, I'm going to give it all away, all of it. I don't need all this, these acres. So she basically started to build the trust in, in a, a nonprofit and gave it to all these spiritual organizations. The Tibetans got a ton of it, like the 16th Karmapa, an amazing Zen center there. They have every lineage there, a lot of Hindu teachers and yogic uh, traditions and Native American traditions. They have no, they're basically world, you know, traditions. But a lot of Dharma uh, people are drawn there. So not only do they give hundreds of acres, this magical forest, Bhutanese, Dzogchen masters, um, every lineage you can imagine um, they have. But they also built into the mountains all of these cabins for yogis. And there's some cabins up there where people are doing life retreats, which is very inspiring, right? Imagine a life retreat. You go in, that's it. Sometimes I wonder, do they come out? I don't know. They really <laughs> die in there? Like, how old are they? So, but I was very inspired by this idea, like, life retreat, liberation, or death, you know, this kind of. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's like so 
passionate and <laughs> devoted, you know. So these are the kind of vibes in this area. It's still going on, you know. If anything, they've built onto it. Uh, as I know, um, Ninja Rinpoche, one of my teachers in the Tibetan tradition, and Sokni Rinpoche, another, they have a huge piece of land and they're building it, so they were given a huge chunk of land. So in the little town, there's, it's very interesting. It's uh, just little five or seven shops and just an organic store. And mostly you just see monastics coming and going in different traditions, right? Getting their mail or whatever, getting their little groceries. So I fell in love with it in the San De, De Cristo mountain range up there. And so I, there was a small Tibetan center, of course. And they had only eight people in a little retreat. And so I said, okay, I'm going to stay here for five months and I'm going to do purification practices. And the purification practices I was going to do were prostrations and mantra. And uh, so I was all like, I'm going to do 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantras. You know, I had these aspirations. And so I, I went to the center and I stayed uh, with everybody else. Uh, there was only eight people, but I stayed there for two months. But then something kind of wild and restless happened to me. I started wanting to get out of the center and go out into the land. I would walk and see the mountains, and the snow was just starting to melt. And I was like, i got to get out of here. And so a nun happened to come by. You know things are never, it's always like, it happens like that. This nun stops by. <laughs> And she said, well, if you want real practice, then go to this cottage I know about. And I was like, well, I do want real practice. I mean, I'm here to do real practice. And it sounded great. And also, there were some people at the retreat that they would talk all the time, you know. And the, the, there was a Bhutanese, um, a beautiful Bhutanese Lama living there, but he wanted to practice English with me every time he saw me. So we'd have these long, drawn out, and I'd be like, okay. And I just couldn't bear it anymore. I was like, oh my God, he's going to find me and try to talk to me for hours, and I, I got to get out of this place, you know. So I went to go look at the cabin. They took me up to look at the cabin, and I thought, this is it. It's way up in the middle of nowhere. We had, but they had a tiny solar panel, so they had a little refrigerator and a little bit of light that you could have at night. It was tiny little, and it was very small. Anyway, why am I telling you this story? Because this is where I learned about compassion. So I imagine, as we do with all things, only the beautiful aspects of it. Oh, it'll be so great. No one will bother me. I'll be one with nature in these beautiful, epic moments of you know, interconnection with all of life. I'll sit in deep states of consciousness. You know, we imagine all that. But it was a weird phenomenon that happened because this crazy kind of caretaker, mountain man, spirit, half spirit, half human, I, I think named Jampa, he was dropping me off and they bring you water every 12 or 14 days. So there's an outhouse running water. You do like a shower on your deck yourself. You boil water, and he and so he would, and you have to find, you know, get wood. They chopped a bunch of wood for the stove, and um, so he was like, "Okay, you got everything you need. I'm, I'll, I'll see you in about two weeks, okay?" And then, and then he started driving down the road, and I was like, "Wait a minute, no!" And then I descended into the most intense mind state. You know, when we have to purify something, we never know how it's going to happen, when. These things just happen, right? You don't wake up asking for anxiety 
every day, right? You didn't wake up saying, oh, let me feel sorrow from the depths of my soul for the next year. These things just happen. They arise on their own. They go on their own. And so that three months became an incredible retreat because oceans of tears just fell. They wouldn't stop. They just, they didn't even fall. They poured, literally, water poured out all day as I prostrated, I tried. I had went through so many boxes of Kleenex. It just became napkins, anything I could find. Water just poured out. And then at night, as soon as the sun would go down, the terror would start and the shaking, my whole body. I was quite thin then, so my body would shake and I would just sit there rocking in terror. I didn't know why I felt that I was going to be killed at any second. It was just coming, just primal. Here I thought I would be having so much fun on the earth and there was just this terror. And then, okay, one day, two days, five days, ten days, three weeks, I couldn't take it. And so I started praying for compassion moment by moment. Avalokiteshvara, Tara, Kuan Yin, every compassion being I could think of. I thought of all the yogis and cabins all across the land, spirits, Jesus, Mary, anybody out there, right, <laughs> in the universe. <laughs> you know, when you're desperate, you'll get to praying about some stuff, right? And I think... As I was going through the prayers and practices every day, I was taking refuge as I was bowing, too. I was taking refuge. And so as the compassion started to come, I started to take refuge in the compassion. It's like I called the hotline somewhere, and it all showed up. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you, compassion. Oh, the compassion has arrived. And I could feel this shift instead of fighting what was happening, just embracing it was like a fire that was like, you can't stop this. You have to be with it. You can't stop this. You have to be with it. It was like the compassion was teaching me how to be with. I thought it was impossible to be with. Who could be with these emotions? They are so strong. You know, day after day after day. I mean, I had all the calendar. I was counting, like, one day down. And I wasn't going to leave. I'd run in my house. I didn't have a cell phone, no computer. I was going to stay. I was going to stay. I knew that for some reason. And then at night, all I had was, like, these books, like, The Great Liberation, 1 through 10. You know, they were, like, these really big Dharma books, right? It was, like, emptiness basically. <laughs> so I would read, like, emptiness. That was, like, my entertainment. And then I'd be like, okay, back to the compassion again. And I remember at night, I tell this story, at night, I would, the only way I could stop my body from shaking, it just did what it wanted to do. It stopped as soon as I, you know, the week before I left. It was slowing down. It's like it, it wore itself out. But I would imagine I'd put my pillows, like, you know, these, these buckwheat pillows. I would, there was a tiny little bed. It was like a little, little single, and then the altar. That was mostly the whole cabin. It was only 100 square feet, if that. And so I put the pillows behind me, and I would imagine they were these giant bosoms, you know, and then I would slink like this down, and I would imagine like these giant brown arms wrapping like this, and I was like in Mother, the breast of Mother Earth, Great Mother, Kuan Yin. Pancha Mama, all the mamas, right, <laughs> held in compassion, and then I could sleep finally. That was the only way I could sleep. 
So I write about this chapter because I didn't understand compassion until that retreat was over. And I bowed to that compassion. I didn't make 100,000. I only did about 45,000 prostrations, but I would say 40,000 was to compassion. And bowing to the depths of the heart and what it has to open to. And in order to get free in this human life, we have to meet these parts that are really broken at times. They're not broken out of hatred. They're broken out of a lack of love. Like somewhere inside, they get broken. And we see this in our fellow brothers and sisters, don't we? Just kind of, but the only way that you could come back to it is with a kind of loving heart. So this practice of the heart means a lot to me. I wanted to show you the picture that I had drawn, but let me see. Right, so I, I said, I call it meeting the great chief, because I started in my bows, I started bowing to it as a chief. Like the chiefs here, I could feel the difference when there was compassion present and when there wasn't. When there wasn't, it became unbearable. When it was there, it became endurable, right? It became able to do it. So that's just one chapter in this book. I love the aboriginal activist. She writes, if you have come to help me, you're wasting your time. If you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. That's Leela Watson attributed. But she, she denies that it was um, her saying that. Of course, she would. So this book and these stories are filled. At the beginning, I started with blooming in the mud, how many of us start with difficult conditions and how those conditions can be just what you need. Now, I left that retreat, and I was different after that. Obviously, some deep karmic knot, unbelievable, had been released out of that. And this freed upness that felt, my heart felt buoyant and light. My body felt lighter. I felt my spirit light, light, you know, this embodiment part of ourselves. You know, there's a self and there's no self, but the, the something that appeared was lighter. <laughs> the, the feeling that appeared was lighter. So not, so don't worry, you don't have to go through that. Some people think they hear this story and they're like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't want to go in that, but not everybody has to. That was my karma. I want to just share with you a little bit about one of my favorite Hopi creation stories. So the creator gathered all of creation and said, I want to hide something from the humans until they're ready for it. It is the realization that they create their own reality. The eagle said, give it to me. I'll take it to the moon. The creator said, no, one day they'll go there and they'll find it. The salmon said, I will bury it in the bottom of the ocean. The creator said, no, they will go there. They'll find it. The buffalo said, I will bury it out on the great plains. And the creator said, they will cut into the skin of the earth, and they'll find it even there. Grandmother Mole, who lives in the breast of Mother Earth and who has no physical eyes, but sees with spiritual eyes, said, put it inside of them. And the creator said, it is done. 
So we're always like looking, right, for something. You know that feeling you wake up looking, where is it? It's like we always have this thing that we lost something and we just got to find it. God, if I just could get this thing. And our whole society is kind of built on that looking. Because then what happens when we're looking, everyone's like, here it is. Just ten ninety nine. it's yours. And then we're like, take it home. Wow, yeah, that wasn't the thing. Let's go out again, right, through the day and look for something else. And we're all just like kind of in that, right? That would be called samsara, <laughs> right? But, you know, house full of junk, still out looking around. What can I find in the flea markets? What can I find, you know, it's like the flea market of the soul. I say, we're always looking. And so, so much of the meta practices and the heart practices, what I've discovered is that when you build what you're looking for, where you awaken it, and here, it creates a stability. It creates a very deep sense of power and contentment. Right? You're not putting on your hat every day, searching the streets for that, you know, the keys that you already have in your wallet or your pocket. Right? It, it brings everything back to a kind of centeredness. And I started to understand a lot of the you know, great masters, how the, 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 the focus being like, I was like, why does the Dalai Lama, every, all these Tibetan masters do years of t- compassion retreat before they would do other retreats? And then I thought, oh, so they could open to these highest teachings that they would have the solidity there. It wouldn't sort of crack your mind when you see the truth, right? It, that's why they say we get enlightened in stages, like we couldn't handle the full, the full monte of it, the full reality, like we're so clingy, we're, so, we're still so looking for the keys. If someone said there was no key, we'd be like, what? No, even though logically we get it on some deep level, we're, we're searchers, we're clingers, right? So there has to be a gradual understanding Right? And that understanding, if it's not balanced with the heart, it can become cold. Right? It could become aloof because really we live in these two realities. We live in, um, you know, conventional reality or relative reality. Conventional reality or relative reality, obviously. I'm spring. We're in Brooklyn. Right? It's Wednesday. It's 8, you know, almost 8.30. But that's kind of, we're making all that up, right? That's a very really important part. That's the, you know, in the Buddha called that. That's that's a that's a very powerful truth. That's an important truth. That's one truth. But then we have the other truth, right? Which is like, if we look at this thing, this looks so solid, right? But we know if we look to the quantum level, nothing here, just moving particles, right? So it's like, what? How can nothing be here but particles of light? moving quickly that looks solid, and then something appears. And then what's odd about quantum level is that some unknown period, it dissolves on its own. Who knows what life this has in it? But like everything, it has a shelf life. At one point, these particles break up. Maybe it gets thrown in the ocean. Who knows? It feels invincible. It feels permanent. But it's not. Right? So we have these two truths. A friend of mine sent me this... um, a really beautiful image of this incredible star. And she wrote, oh, I found this really old picture of you. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, right, this is a picture of all of us. This is a picture of all of us, not just me, 
right? The picture of all of us. So I wanted to come and just remind you about these qualities of the heart. And it can seem right now there is a lot against it. It seems like the villains are out in full force right now. They have their heyday, right, where being cruel is, is, is fun. Or it feels like they get progress like that, right? It feel, it's, a, it's, a, it's a minute. This is a long journey, and it might feel like, okay, all the, they're winning, right? There's a team that feels like, God, where everyone's acting so rude and cruel and on the blogs, in the media. I have a lot of friends that work in the media, and they're like, oh, God, it's hard, <laughs> right? Writers and, and, and trying to not let what's constantly being put out wear down the spirit. But the truth of that is that... Um, that's temporary. That's like a temporary gain. It's like when you steal something, you get that temporary money, but in the long term, it's not yours. You don't really win. You know what I mean? It's like you got that ill-gotten gain. So right now, there's a lot of stealing going on. So it looks like, oh, look, look, they're, they're ahead, they're ahead, right? <laughs> the bad, the, 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 the deluded, you know, mind, but it's temporary. One of my favorite quotes that I thought was quoted to the Buddha, which I found out when I was researching this book, um, is not. It says, um, three things cannot be hidden for long. The sun, the moon, and the truth. Right? Three things cannot be hidden. The sun, the moon, and the truth. So the energy of the heart is like, it's like the sun hidden by the clouds right now. Right? It feels like, oh my gosh, we'll never see it. it it's, no, it's out. It's gone. But it's just going to have its, because it's indestructible. It's like, you know, it's the fabric. is this energy of the universe, this infinite compassion, this infinite restorative kind of rejuvenation of that. And so I just wanted to take some time to remind you about that tonight and to encourage you to go back to working with the heart practices for a while, especially if you're, Regular practice feels a little dry, a little hard, a little barren, like a little bit like the desert. <laughs> Sometimes you have to put some water on it, and a lot of the juice comes from here. It's devotion is juicy, and the quality of love and compassion creates the kind of juice, and it creates the kind of openness that allows us, the mind, to relax when it's filled with kindness. Um, one of the causes of concentration is happiness. When the mind is happy and calm, it gets concentrated. When we're forcing and we're, you know, it's like just a windstorm, right? The more you run around, the more it runs around, right? So the more that we develop the calmness that comes from the stilling of the heart and the equanimity that can come from the heartbeat at peace, when there's a lot of love present for ourselves, again, we're in our own energy. We're not looking out for you know, love, approval, right? So there's a, there's a peace that comes from being like, yes, I'm here, I am here, right? You're, you know, we're not so frazzled. We're not fractured in that way. Do you know what I mean by that? You don't have that esteem yet. It, it, it creates a kind of internal fracture um, that meta can heal in these practices, really, every, every single thing. So... Um, it is, but just know that the compassion can always meet it. Okay, so the last thing I'll say, because I really, this is a good point. My mind is 
a baby. My mind is like a two-year-old. My heart, vast and powerful. So I, up here, I can't deal with a lot, right? Even a bumpy plane, I get freaked out, right? But my heart has deep roots. And this is what I call on. I don't, the mind can't comprehend, but the heart has this wisdom. It's like, yes, it can hold the 10,000 million sufferings of all the family tree of all the suffering. I can't, but the heart can. And so this is what I'm learning about its capacity. Like, wow, here, no sense. I move it down into my body, and I say, okay, we have to hold what feels unbelievable, what feels like so much injustice, oh my, where the part that goes outrage, right, cruelty that's happening on the planet, the destruction, oh my God, these men being murdered, and like, I take a breath, and I bring it into my heart, and I let my heart hold it, and there, it can't make sense, because it's way more wise than this mind, so I have discovered this, so I, and others have too, so I just encourage you to keep bringing it down here and letting it all sort of metabolize through the heart. Let it all reconcile because it's strong. And we know this about our hearts. We know, oh my God, we know it. Uh, so we just have to learn how to sort of harness the power of it and see its strength and its capacity because its capacity is immeasurable. The mind's capacity is like, ee, 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 you know, it's ego-driven, right? But the heart's capacity is like, boundless, universal. We have barely even, I think, understood this. As a, I know for me, I, I catch glimpses of it, and I'm awed. It's, again, what makes bodhisattvas commit to serving all beings for immeasurable, endless. Because they're not doing it with the mind. Their heart is making that vow. The heart's like, yep, I can do it. You can, but I can't. Right? So we're using that same energy to heal and live from, but we're, I'm sort of trying to figure out how to get people to live there daily. Right now, we just kind of turn it on and off, maybe, but we're not abiding there. So. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.